My name is Priya Katari, and you're listening to Telling Times, a new podcast examining the most pressing issues facing America. Today's episode, F is for Forgotten, Part 1. Jeremiah is this mixture of naive kid and mature adult, all rolled into one. He's 22, he's six foot something, he's got a bit of a swagger, a bit of charm. He's eloquent when he speaks about himself. But he's also a little shy, slightly in awe of the world around him and all of its mysteries. He asks questions about where I'm from, about my accent, and is wondrous at the answers. That I'm Indian by descent, but I'm British, and that I live in America. Are you for real, he asks? Jeremiah had a tough upbringing. His home life was chaotic, his dad wasn't around in the early years. His mum struggled to cope with being a parent to him and his brother. He did what all kids do at that age, what we all did at one time or another. He rebelled, he got into trouble, he played hooky from school, he fell behind. In all the chaos, the drugs, the alcohol, the gangs, he was moved to a foster home when he was 12, then on to his dad's house. He rebelled some more. He was moved forward in school, but he couldn't keep up, so he missed more school. He spent his days walking around town, stealing bikes in Palo Alto. I meet Jeremiah at the Old School Cafe, a restaurant in the Bayview-Hunters Point district of San Francisco. He says to me, Everyone always says they came from nothing. That's not true. I came from something. It just wasn't a lot. It was like really hard, but it was like, it was meant for me. It was, you know, it was something that I could handle. And I was able to just get out of that and get like the things that I really needed. Like, cause I've always been like, okay, what do I need? What do I need? I've never been like, oh snap, I'm trapped. Like I've always found a way to like, you know, get food, clothes, you know, take care of myself. I've been doing that for like a long time, like since I was like eight. A word on the background noise. The voices you can hear, that's old school at work. The sound gets better. I didn't go to school. Like school was not a priority for me because like I couldn't stand it. I hated it. I wanted to go to school because I wanted to make friends. I wanted to have fun within the classes, but I was feeling like a straight victim. Like I couldn't take it because I, I wasn't able to like handle all of the stuff that was happening to me with like all the kids bullying me and just being traumatized from the house going to school. And it was like super hard, like really hard. Jeremiah's story is a familiar one. Across America, millions of children are growing up in severe disadvantage. One in five are living in poverty, their families not earning enough to make ends meet. Many kids suffer violence, abuse, addiction in their own home, in multiple foster homes. Some have come out to their parents and have been rejected. Faced with all of this, they rebel or they run away. 
Like the first time I started going to juvenile hall was like 14. I started going to juvenile hall at 14. And then every year I would just keep on going back. Just back and forth, back and forth. Like I had never like, every year I would at least get up like locked up like once. I wasn't getting going crazy like everyone else. Like, I knew people who had been locked up like 16 times. But I'm like, I'm low key, you know, I don't do nothing. I'm not like other people. Like other people, they, you know, they do things kind of different. Like I was raising, I was gonna raise by my dad, so like, I kind of had like this theory. Like my brother, he he stayed with my mom, and now he's just like grew up, like kind of messed up, and he's like messed up right now. And me, like staying with my father, I kind of like still paid attention, but I wasn't pulling it into a full effect because I didn't have that support system to really like enforce me like doing good. When he was 19, Jeremiah was arrested and put into county jail. He went from being a naughty kid to a troubled young adult almost overnight. This is the story about America's forgotten youth. The 7 million young people, 17%, who were not in education or employment or training. The young people who were failed by the system growing up. The young people who drop out of school, who end up on the streets, in jail and in trouble the young people who have the skills to navigate the streets but haven't had the chance to nurture their life skills. But it's also a story about hope, about the incredible men and women who are working day in and out to reach these kids to get them back on track. It's about how we are starting to better understand why kids behave the way they do, why they make the decisions that they do and how we can help them make better decisions. And it's about kids like Jeremiah who manage, against all odds, to turn their lives around. My name is Teresa Goines and I'm the founder and CEO of Old School Cafe. Teresa used to be a correctional officer in a juvenile detention facility. Let me just stop there and say Teresa was not what I expected a correctional officer to look like. I'm not sure what I expected but it wasn't this. Teresa is this wonderfully warm, open, caring person who you just want to make your friend. And when she speaks she clearly understands the experience of kids living in crisis. The United States locks up more of its juveniles than any other country in the developed world. Rates have been falling, but they remain high. Nearly 71,000 young people are currently in youth incarceration. That's the equivalent of at least one kid in every high school in America going to prison. I asked her why kids ended up in her facility. How had it got that bad? It was very similar. It was often a lot of trauma in their family. So I saw a lot of the same patterns. Everything from being in a single family home where maybe dad's in prison or one or both parents are on drugs or being completely in foster care, not having any parents and going bouncing around from home to home and poverty. That was sort of the other thing, um, the desperation of just needing to survive. And so if they weren't able to survive with not having, you know, breadwinner in the home and, and they're poor, what they see around them is drugs and illegal ways of making money. And so that's, those were sort of the factors that I saw over and over. Trauma. That word came up, not just with Teresa, but with other people I spoke to. These deeply distressing experiences that were having an impact on children. I wanted to understand this better. I asked Teresa what the effect of this was on kids, starting from when they were in school. 
let's say you're a young person and you just laid in bed all night hoping that your dad wasn't going to kill your mom or the, or the boyfriend, right? And so it's you're involved in this horrible fear of watching your mom get beat up or there's often sexual abuse, all kinds of stuff going on in the home. Now, this is your your home environment where you're seeing major violence and trauma, and so you're not sleeping well because nightmares are the norm if you're able to sleep at all because you're trying to protect yourself or protect your family. And all this is in your head and you're young, you're supposed to process all this violence and this fear of your own safety, your family's safety. And then you're supposed to come to school and not have any anger, not act out, sit still, pay attention <laughs> to algebra and care about what X plus Y equals when everything in your mind, you may not have had, you know, a good meal or food to eat. And so you're supposed to sit there and listen. Well, that's just not reality for any of us. If we went through some kind of crazy trauma like that the next day and hadn't eaten, we would be angry. <laughs> we would be not sitting still listening and certainly not able to concentrate well enough to pass the test happening that day. The way Teresa explains it, it's as if these kids just have so much on their minds. They're struggling with all these internal battles. How do I protect my mum from my dad? How do I take care of my brothers and sisters? How do I not get bullied at break time? How do I solve all these problems by the time I get home today? And all of these questions, they just take up processing time in their minds. Think about it this way. You're on your way to work, your car breaks down, you call recovery. Because it's rush hour, the traffic is backed up so it takes them over an hour to get to you. But you're lucky because it's no meeting Wednesday. So your diary is pretty free, only a catch-up coffee. You email your friend to cancel and catch up on some reading while you wait. You get to work an hour late, but you're pretty relaxed about it. Now imagine the same scenario, but this time you have a 9am meeting that you have to attend. After that you're back to back so there's no way it can be postponed until later in the day. You check your email while waiting for the recovery people and see another urgent request come in. There's just no way you can squeeze everything in especially as you're now running late. Dealing with the delay caused by your breakdown becomes harder when you have a packed workday, when time is short, when it is scarce. Two well-known researchers, Sendhil Milanathan, a behavioural economist at Harvard University, and Elder Shafir, a cognitive psychologist at Princeton, have looked at this concept of scarcity. Here's what they say. We all have a finite amount of mental capacity or energy. They call this bandwidth. It's our ability to process information and make decisions. It's our ability to control our impulses and make good decisions. What they find is that scarcity reduces our bandwidth. It makes us less insightful. It makes us less forward thinking. It makes us less controlled. Scarcity does this by causing us to tunnel, to focus entirely on the scarcity at hand and how to manage it. This happens to all of us. Think about it like this. When you've got a pressing deadline, a presentation tomorrow, a dinner party you're hosting, you focus entirely on meeting that goal. In a way, it's good for you. You ignore all the other distractions, an email, a quick check of Facebook, and focus entirely on the job at hand. But the flip side of focusing is neglecting. You skip the gym. You ignore your child when they ask you a question. The dishes start to pile up in the sink. 
Because our minds are entirely occupied by the task at hand, very little bandwidth is available for anything else. And if that is the case, then we're more likely to take actions that use very little of our capacity. It takes effort to control the urge to snap at someone when you're busy. It's just easier to snap. Daniel Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize for his work on behavioural economics, has called this type 1 and type 2 thinking. Type 1 is the fast choice, the automatic, the one that we do without thinking. Type 2 is the slow, considered choice, the one that takes effort to control our impulses. Which one is more likely when you have limited capacity for effort? In a way, scarcity acts like a tax on our bandwidth, not our inherent capacity. We're no less smart today than we were yesterday. But on how much of that capacity is available for use, that's not taken up by dealing with the immediate need. Scarcity captures our minds. I think of it a little bit like my Wi-Fi. When I'm streaming something from Netflix, everything else automatically slows down. I can't check my email, I can't use Skype, there's no more room in my bandwidth. See, my old man's got a problem. Here with the bottle, that's the way it is. He says his body's too old for working. His body's too young to look like his. My mama went off and left him. She wanted more from life than he could give. I said, somebody's got to take care of him. I quit school and that's what I do. So how does this all relate back to poverty? How does it relate back to the kids we've been thinking about? Well, for them, their immediate needs have captured their minds. They're thinking about survival, protection, food. They're not thinking about algebra. It's just too noisy in their heads. And so when they're asked a question, they don't know the answer. They're embarrassed. Their immediate and natural response if they have limited bandwidth is that they act out. They shout, they swear, they're sent to the principal's office where they once again stew about home, but now they have this extra thing to stew about, which squeezes out more mental bandwidth. And so it goes on. That's what Jeremiah was talking about when he said that school wasn't for him. He said that he couldn't handle all of the stuff that was happening and concentrate at school. An important side note here, a teenager's brain is not fully formed. They have the right ingredients, but they're not done cooking. The area of our brain that is responsible for good decision making, for regulating our emotions, our executive functions as they're known, that area sits in our prefrontal cortex. It's, well, it's at the front of our brain. Now, teenagers have a prefrontal cortex and so do adults. But in teenagers, the connection between this part of the brain and other parts, well, those connections aren't fully formed, especially to those parts that are associated with emotion and impulse. As a number of researchers have put it, the rental companies have it right. The brain isn't fully mature at 16, when we're allowed to drive, or at 18, when we're allowed to vote, or even at 21, when we're allowed to drink. It's closer to 25 when we're allowed to rent a car. So all teenagers have limited control over their emotions. And those struggling with bandwidth have an even harder time. The bandwidth idea might also help explain parental behaviour. 
I want to stop here and say that this doesn't justify the abuse that kids experience at home. I'm not trying to make excuses, but I am trying to understand why parents behave the way they do. And I think about it like this. A parent working in an investment bank, doing 12, maybe 15 hours a day, they will tunnel. They don't like it, they know they're neglecting their family, their friends, but they do it. Writing this podcast, especially as I got closer to my deadline, I tunnelled. I ordered takeaway, I skipped the gym. So if the daily struggle of life in poverty involves complex calculations to try and make a small budget stretch to cover food, rent, clothes, and shocks like an unexpected medical bill, then the poor will tunnel. They will focus on the job at hand to the neglect of everything else. And neglect... Well, neglect will show up in lots of ways, in anger, in addiction, things that are easier to not fight than to fight. Even in nurturing your child, in ensuring that they get to school on time, in giving them a hug to relieve them of some of the stress, in just being there for them. The most interesting thing about the Miller, Nathan and Shafir work is that they show time and time again that these actions are not limited to a certain type of person. Poverty acts as a tax on bandwidth to anyone subject to the scarcity constraint. The experience of poverty makes us less smart, even if our underlying cognitive ability is unchanged. This could really happen to any of us. Do you remember how you felt? Just lonely, sad, really depressed, really depressed. I didn't love myself, so I was like trying to make people love me. So I would go like go out my way to do something for him because I didn't know how to love myself. So I did like some crazy things just to you know, just to get accepted. I wanted to feel acceptance. Like you go around like uh, East Paltings, see everyone has all this family. I'm like I want to have that. So you're trying to make friends, and you can't make friends like with people who are like, you know, grew up with two parent household, got brothers and sisters and cousins coming over for like, you know, whatever it is that they do, and that's what I wanted, and I got that out of here with like, you know, gang. I wouldn't call it a gang. I thought it was like, kind of necessary to know like what it is. Now that I'm like more grown up, like. No, people are going through the same thing and they want that same acceptance. So, you know, you're going to have like this type of brotherhood and that's what you want. Like, even though like what you're doing is negative, like that's what's around your environment. So that's all you know and that's what you're going to do. Everyone has a sense of wanting to be part of something. When I arrived in the U.S., the first thing I did was try and make friends. It gave me roots. Jeremiah found that in a gang. It drew him in. It gave him a sense of belonging. But he's smart enough to realize that there was no one around to show him opportunity. To show him that there were other things out there for him. Bigger things. Better things. In a way, he'd kind of resigned himself to a life that he thought was suitable for him. He was a kid from the wrong side of the street, destined to stay there, or get into crime, or go to prison, or do drugs. Not a kid who was going to graduate from high school, get a degree, get a good job. He succumbed the stereotype of himself. I'm Hannah Dore and I'm the program director at the San Francisco Education Fund. What I really think is that there isn't, they don't have a sense that there's a place for them after high school in, in the academic world. 
and sometimes even in high school, it's a big enough barrier to get them or a big enough push to get them through high school because I think they they aren't connected to what high school or college really means for their life and their career goals. A lot of them are growing up in communities where, you know, just most people have really blue-collar, hands-on jobs, and so they don't see education as necessary, dealing with families who, uh, coming from families who don't work at all. You know, they haven't had the opportunity, they haven't been able to keep a job, so they don't really see academia as a place for them, and therefore it's not something they they can even strive for. Hannah is someone who's always been interested in education as a way to even out social inequity. She tells this nice story about a realisation that she had when she was a student doing her Masters in Public Policy at George Washington University. She was involved in a tutoring programme for low-income kids in a high school, and she was supposed to be tutoring them in American history, but she realised that what she was actually tutoring them in was reading. They were so far behind they couldn't even begin to comprehend what she was saying. That's when it struck her that these kids might not even end up with the skills they needed just to function in the world, which spurred her into education. And I don't believe it's because they aren't smart enough. I just don't. I think it's because they don't don't have that internal belief system that they can make it. And I think they're just lacking in that understanding of that college is hard for everyone. My life experience is different than a lot of the students I have worked with, but I always tell them, you know what, I, the one thing I wish someone had told me is that college is hard for everyone. If you don't already have that feeling that you belong in college, you're not going to stick it out. Young people growing up in disadvantage arrive at middle school with the sense that the writing is already on the wall. They don't belong in this academic world, so they might as well give up trying now. Save some of that bandwidth for all the other struggles that they have. They lack self-belief. Researchers, looking at achievement gaps by race, ethnicity and income, wanted to see how these beliefs affected school performance. And they broke down the belief system into two broad categories. The first is a sense of belonging. I don't fit into this school environment because of my background. The second is ability. I'm not clever enough to succeed at school and go on to college. Joshua Ronson, Assistant Professor of Applied Psychology at New York University, and Claude Steele, a psychologist and the provost of the University of California, Berkeley, identified what they call stereotype threat. Stereotype threat is the risk that students succumb to negative beliefs about themselves. Things like, I'm African American, so I'm going to do less well at school. I'm a girl, so I won't be very good at maths. I'm from a poor family, so I'm destined for a low-paying job if I get a job at all. They found that the very act of getting students to write down their race before a test widened the attainment gap between white and African-American students. A reminder, no change in the test, no change in the student's intrinsic ability. Writing down their race reinforced the association in the students' minds between race and perception about ability. Other researchers have repeated these results for the performance of girls on math tests and students from low-income families. They've also repeated it for affluent white students in sport, where the stereotype goes, African Americans are better than whites. In another experiment, they asked African American and white college students to take a standardised verbal test. 
They presented the test as a measure of intellectual ability, a test of how clever the students were. The African-American students performed worse than their white peers. Can you guess what happened when the same test was used, but students were told that it was being used to evaluate testing methods, not intellectual ability? The African-American students performed better. Let's think about what that means for the kids that we've been talking about. Young, disadvantaged students arrive at high school ready to sit a test, but they go into the classroom thinking, I'm not going to do well because I'm poor. Some of them might be in a classroom surrounded by more affluent peers, which reminds them of how different they are. They end up not doing well. Aronson and Steele say that part of that is because students who suffer from stereotype threat get so stressed out that it impedes their ability. That's our old friend Bandwidth again. Because they end up not doing well, they provide themselves with evidence of what they knew in the first place, that because they're poor, they're not clever enough, they don't belong in that class. So they're put in a remedial class. But this just reminds them that they're not clever enough. Otherwise, why would they be in the remedial class in the first place? So young people growing up in disadvantage can face multiple obstacles. The environment around them is chaotic, sometimes so chaotic that they're forced to leave and end up in a vulnerable place like the streets. Inside, they're so busy dealing with these stresses that they have no room to focus on school or the other things that people tell them are important for success in life, like holding down a job. They also lack self-belief that they can do better, that there are opportunities to improve their lot. Because, well, because the writing is already on the wall for them. They don't have mentors. They lose faith in the systems that are designed to help them. School, foster care, social workers. They become increasingly difficult to reach. And they end up at the edge of society. But here's the thing. Talking to Jeremiah, to Teresa, to Hannah, I learned one really powerful thing. These kids are tough. They have resilience. Probably more resilience than you or I have. Just think about what they're facing on a daily basis. That resilience might go on to be their greatest strength if it can be harnessed in the right way. Next time on Telling Times, we explore that resilience. Well, one thing I, I think that we need to get across to our young people is that they're their biggest asset um, and the resiliency that they have. Some of our children are dealing with some of the most extreme social ills that exist, um, and it's happening to them at a very early age. But the fact that they can live and survive in these communities and, and with all the despair and lack of hope that they may see on a daily basis also lets them know that they can be whatever they want to and become whatever they want to. Thanks for tuning in. We'd love to hear your thoughts and questions about the things we've covered today on the website, tellingtimes.me, on Twitter, at tellingtimesme, and on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash tellingtimesme. See you next time.